Well, hi, it's Simon Breakspear. And in this series of conversations, I'm speaking to global thought leaders and incredible practitioners in order to try to simplify complex ideas, tease apart creative tensions, and surface practical frameworks and tools that can help you in your school and system leadership roles. And today I enter part two of my conversation with Steve Mumby. In part one, we explored his notion of imperfect leadership and connected that to some of the challenges that we're facing on the ground at the moment. But some of the areas that we didn't get to touch are in his core area of expertise in leadership development. Over the last four or five years or so in both my research work and practice, I too have been trying to explore what we know from the literature and what we can do in practice in the area of systematically developing more and better school leaders. And so I really do hope that you enjoy this part of the conversation. We explore the elements of effective school leadership development. We tease apart what it is we're actually trying to de develop through those processes and provide some practical advice to both those providing school leadership development and for those who want to develop themselves. I bring you my conversation with Steve Mumby. Well, I'm here again with the wonderful Steve Mumby, who kindly accepted my offer. I think it was a bit of a voluntold uh, to come back for another round of conversation. Uh, and so, Steve, uh, thanks for, for coming back and making some time. How are things with you? How are you weathering uh, this current challenge? Well, first of all, it's great to talk with you again, Simon. Uh, and yes, it's, uh, it's a challenging time here in the UK. We're still in the middle of lockdown. Um, uh, unlike uh, Australia, which is starting to loosen up a bit, um, but some big issues still to play, play on. And schools are thinking about reopening in the mm. next few weeks for some groups. And that's a big challenge for school leaders, of course. Yeah, and it's just so much uncertainty. Uh, just before we were setting up this conversation, I was uh, in, a, in a dialogue with some school leaders in Victoria and one seasoned professional said to me, Simon, I can't tell you how many times I've said, hey, this isn't my first rodeo. Uh, I've seen this before. And as a school leader, confidently make decisions about next steps. And she said, I'm going into next week and I have not seen this before. And I'm really not sure necessarily what's coming and the decisions I'm going to have to make. And there really is, is this sense of even deeply expert leaders with deep experience are trying to navigate this sense of uh, constant uncertainty. So uh, they're doing it incredibly here, uh, uh, often with changing timelines and things that have to be done at very short notice. Uh, but I would say it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's taking a toll. I agree, they're well outside the comfort zone. There's no mm. manual. Uh, the, the, but the, again, they're showing great courage and bravery as, as well as um, operational and strategic thinking. And of course, they're trying to reassure their staff mm. and the children so that they can create a safe environment uh, for learning. And, and of course, I think one of the big challenges for school leaders is right at the heart of their thinking is protection of staff and children, do no harm, but yes. don't put their children yes. or staff in harm's way. Uh, that's right at the heart of what they do to, to avoid harming their staff and children. And here in, in the current situation here in the UK, they're really wrestling with that. How do they yes. create a safe environment that doesn't put their children or their staff in harm's way? Yeah, they're really, really difficult tensions. Uh, and I'd sort of build on that as well in the sense of, 
um, bringing people back, but not really sure necessarily um, the state that they're in. Uh, some, of course, might have some enthusiasm of, of being back together as a community, but there's also a sense of uh, people have been running on adrenaline for a long time. Uh, there's, it might even be some level of apprehension, not just at the safety concerns, but how do we do this communal thing together? And then lastly, um, one leader said to me, you know, normally when we've been apart, Simon, um, our natural playbook is to get everyone together. You know, they kind of describe when you come back after a long holiday break, uh, staff coming together and often in close proximity, often around a meal, uh, sharing what's happened, maybe announcing some weddings or some babies or some promotions. And there's this sort of collective coming together in a very tight way as a way of uh, reforming quickly. And they're just talking about, well, how um, do we come back and get into this collective work again uh, whilst um, actually separating the adults so much more? And so uh, really is, you know, uncharted territory and outside of anyone's domain of expertise. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, school leaders want to be inclusive. That's, again, mm. that's probably uh, Not to have some students back and not others, or yes. some staff and not others. Yes. So again, it makes it very difficult to create an environment which is positive when you're excluding some people and, and including others. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So look, acknowledging this context, Steve, you know, one of the things that we wanted to dig in into in our last conversation, and uh, we got a little bit carried away in a good way uh, into some of the other things we were exploring together, is this area of leadership development. And you know, clearly, uh, in the last couple of months, if one thing has stood out, it's you know the incredible need and influence of quality collective leadership. But I know that school leadership development is something that you thought deeply about, uh, both uh, in theory, research, uh, and also practice. Um, can you just give a quick context of some of the things in your role, uh, in your roles that have been mostly about leadership development? And then I'm hoping we can sort of explore together uh, the why of leadership development, the who, uh, the what and the how uh, over the next little while or so. But, you know, just to kick off, what are the key influences for you around uh, thinking about and practicing the area of leadership development? Well, as, as, to be honest, I hadn't thought much about leadership development until I became chief executive of the national organization in England that was responsible for leadership development. Yep. And then I had to think a lot about leadership development because that was my role to help to develop school leaders across England uh, mm -hmm. with my colleagues at the National College of School Leadership. And, and so I had to get my head around it an awful lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose a few observations I'd make is I felt that I couldn't um, encourage others to develop themselves as leaders mm -hmm. unless I modeled that myself. Yeah. Um, I couldn't as CEO of the National College for School Leadership expect school leaders to behave in a certain way and for me not to behave in that kind of way. Mm. So I constantly in that role had to try to model or reflect in my own leadership mm -hmm. the issues we were encouraging school principals to lead. Uh, and that was quite challenging. And sometimes I'd be making a speech about leadership, which I did quite a lot of in that role. Yep. And I've been talking as much to myself as I would be to <laughs> about, you know, what the you, you, You're speaking at the same time you're saying to yourself, listen, listen up to this guy. He's got some good things yeah. to say. <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, all, it became deeply personal for me to mm. uh, 
uh, hard for me to call upon others to step up unless I was stepping up. Hard for me to call upon others to be authentic unless I was authentic, etc., mm-hmm. etc. So, so that was, I think, this idea of modeling leadership is so important, so important. We maybe come back to that. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing, uh, as chief executive at the National College, we gradually moved away from. Uh, a leadership development program which was mainly taught yes towards a much more blended approach to leadership development and we 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 had this this notion uh, eventually there are five things that make up effective leadership development and the first was a chance to lead okay. that's we learn to be leaders by leading uh, and if you want to develop uh, leadership in your school or organization, mm. give people a chance to lead. That's fundamental and it's the most powerful way in which we learn, but it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. The second thing we said is a chance to lead with some feedback. Okay. So a mentor or a coach or a line manager or, or a colleague whose job it is to give you feedback on your leadership, who sees you in action and can give you some feedback in an ongoing way mm. is crucial for improvement. Mm-hmm. The third thing we said was the really important one was a exposure to leadership in other contexts. Because yeah. if all you see in context, or if all you see is one kind of leadership, mm-hmm. that could be great leadership, it could be mediocre leadership. So how do you make sure that people's horizons are, 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 are sort of expanded so they can see different types of contexts and different kinds of leadership? So their expectations can be high. And was that the both educational? Was, sorry to jump in, but is that both educational, non-educational in your mind? Uh, in my mind, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we might delve into that a little bit further. Take us to number four. And uh, number four was exposure to uh, research, case studies, materials, mm-hmm. evidence of what works. Uh, uh, so obviously, that's that's more the taught uh, and the research-based aspect of leadership development programs. Mm. Uh, and I think possibly we underemphasized that in the end. We should have emphasized that a bit more. And then finally, a chance to discuss what you're learning in an ongoing way with colleagues, with peers. Mm-hmm. So you can just explore it together uh, and make sense of it. So those five things, a chance to lead with feedback ongoing, uh, exposure to leadership in other contexts, research evidence, case studies, learning materials, and a chance to discuss with colleagues what you're learning. Yeah, I think that's a, a really practical framework to kick off. And, you know, I, I think about in, in both of our work in supporting some large scale leadership development, whether for you formerly with National College, uh, but also in the work we've both done here, you deeply with Basto uh, Institute in Victoria, the both of us uh, in New South Wales with the School Leadership Institute here and, and other programs that we've supported in different parts of the world, you know, there's a sense that um, from a programmatic perspective of uh, governments investing around systems uh, support of uh, leadership, these things make sense. But they also make sense to me, Nate, just from a personal perspective. You know, if I'm a, if I'm a, a teacher leader, a middle leader, um, maybe a deputy principal, assistant principal, principal, I kind of like these five as well as a bit of a checklist of 
have I got the key ingredients at the moment going for my own ongoing development? You know, have I got a chance to lead and maybe lead beyond my comfort zone? Am I getting feedback from relevant experts? Um, am I exposing myself outside the context or have I maybe been in the same educational context a little bit too long? Uh, am, I, am I building my, my uh, knowledge base um, both in uh, the research synthesis, synthesis but also uh, case studies and uh, that emerging practice and am I systematically in deep dialogue and discussion with colleagues to sense make I mean I reckon that's a pretty powerful list uh, both for, for governments investing uh, in programs but also for leaders to, to check in you know do I have those active ingredients for ongoing growth and development I agree absolutely it works at all levels hey so um, let's explore a couple of things, you know, maybe at the individual level, the why of investing in leadership development, whether it's our own in leadership development or our colleagues or thinking all the way through to uh, leading across an entire jurisdictional system. Um, it, it sort of might seem self-evident, but, you know, why do you think over the last little while there's been an increasing focus from government uh, and from different education systems to invest in school leadership. I mean, I know that the investing in teaching quality uh, and uh, teaching professional practice and the quality of teaching has been a big driver for a while, but there really has been this uptick in the last little while about school leadership development. So what do you reckon is driving that at the moment? Well, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really important point. And we're seeing more and more states and countries and systems developing school leadership institutes or school leadership academies um, uh, and investing resource uh, in school leadership development. And I think there's one reason, one reason why this is happening mm. is because uh, governments are trying to improve outcomes for children. And most uh, are very, very rarely meet a, a minister or senior official in an education system that doesn't want to, the education system to get better and for children mm -hmm. to outcomes and and they, they kind of make up these policies in in their offices uh to, they think they're going to try and improve outcomes and then they find that um it's a long way from a decision in an office in headquarters to changing the practice of a teacher in a classroom but unless what they mm. does change the practice of a teacher in a classroom it's not going to have much of an impact on outcomes because the thing that makes the biggest impact on outcomes in a school is the teaching uh, in classrooms with children. So, so they, they have to ask, ask themselves, how do I make sure that anything I'm going to pass as a new policy, a new initiative, could be about assessment, or could be about curriculum, it could be about pedagogy, how am I going to make sure that has impact in classrooms? Mm. And unless, unless school leaders, school principals, school leaders, um, can take that initiative, mm. contextualize it for their own situation and take their staff with them to implement it and make a difference, that policy is going to have very little impact. Got it. And I think, I think governments are realizing this. They're realizing that actually mm. key to implementing uh, new, po new policies, new initiatives is having a great um, cadre of, of school leaders, school principals. Mm. Not only that, but also the other point, not only will school leaders either help to implement or not implement a national policy uh, or, or contextualize it for their situation. If it works, those school leaders will also be feeding back to government what's working, what isn't working, so they can get better yeah. at policy making. 
So I think this, the, the issue yeah, like is that. as a government uh, official or minister, if I want to really improve outcomes, therefore investing in school leadership development is going to be the main ways in which I can do it. Yeah. Okay. So it's both that, that distance uh, from policy intent to policy implementation, that system learning, that as they learn to do it, that, that, that those insights, that um, how do we actually make this work can be fed back to the system. And I guess also you think about the diversity of school settings, you know, we always talk about context, don't we? You know, my home system out my public school system here in New South Wales is 2,200 schools. Uh, and we cover a huge area with unbelievable diversity. We've got 500 plus small schools with teaching principals, other huge schools with many thousands of students. And so how do you, um, I guess, implement policy intent across that diversity. Well, you need local leaders who get it, but then can do that adaptive work of making it work in their context. Uh, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. And that's why investing in leadership development so leaders can have that, that expertise, not just to follow orders, but actually to think through what would work in their context. Mm. Hey, what about if I, if I bring it down a level, Steve, I bring it out of, you know, thinking about maybe a system leader, thinking about large scale uh, change across lots of schools. What about if I'm a head teacher, if I'm a principal, deputy principal, assistant principal? I know we use lots of different terms across uh, systems, um, but what would be the case for them investing in leadership development within their own institution, even if their government or broader system leaders aren't necessarily offering those opportunities? There's a bit of a tension here, to be honest, because um, sometimes uh, in England, when I was at the National College, we used to get this issue. Why should my school invest in training and developing uh, an assistant head teacher or deputy principal if, as a result of it, they're going to go and teach, lead another school? Not, not the school <laughs> in fact, you'll make them more employable. They might leave quicker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're investing money and they go and do it somewhere else. Not, the, my, my response to that was always, um, if you invest in your people and mm. develop them, you may lose some, but others will want to come and work with you. Oh, if you nice. don't invest in your people, you, you, might, you, might, you might lose them for other reasons because they get fed up and want to go. So uh, I'd rather have people who are, who are developing and learning mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and uh, even if I lose quite a few of them, they'd have an entrenched, uh, stuck school where people aren't given opportunities to learn and develop. Well, there's that old saying, isn't there, uh, Steve? People say, well, what happens if I invest in them and they leave? And you say, well, what happens if you don't invest in them and they stay? Uh, you know, but you know, uh, what I've seen uh, in a couple of systems now is sometimes you find um, all these principals who all sort of talk about their time under a certain head teacher, a certain principal in the past. And I call these schools sort of talent magnets or talent incubators. And it's quite strange that sometimes when a leader really gets this in their mind uh, over a decade or so, uh, many people come and build their career with that leader and then go out and lead uh, their own uh, school or go and take a promotion elsewhere. 
And, um, you know, one of the helpful frameworks I've, I've thought about from this actually comes from uh, uh, Reid Hoffman and Ben Kasnocha. Uh, they talk about an idea of a tour of duty. Uh, don't get me wrong, this is not any kind of active military duty. It's more of a, a conversation between senior leaders and those they're investing in that said, look, uh, we know we're not going to work our entire careers together and you know, be the kind of person with real leadership capability and aspirations. I don't want you to stay here long term, but let's maybe have an upfront conversation about um, what we could do together over a couple of years. You know, maybe it's a two year horizon, three year horizon, five to seven year horizon and say during that time, there's sort of a bit of a social contract the idea that, that that senior leader will systematically invest uh, maybe along the lines of your five core areas uh, and that um, uh, aspirational leader, that emerging leader coming through in good faith says, well, look, you know, unless something really changes, I, I'm going to do my tour with you. I'll do this two or three years. You know, I'll, I'll do that transformation that really needs to happen in this uh, faculty or team. I'll see this agenda through. And I kind of like this idea of, of course, not a binding agreement, but sort of this social contract of over a medium period of time, uh, that uh, co-investment, uh, and it can be a really healthy way to sort of set some, uh, some parameters and some expectations around co-investing and doing great work together, but knowing that we probably won't end our careers together. I think that's a great example. And, and I'm sure all of us um, are aware of, of school leaders who've operated like that. Mm. It's very, very powerful. But I think this idea of how you develop talent in your own school uh, is a really, really important one and quite a challenging one. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you've done quite a bit of thinking on this yourself, Sam. What are your views on, on talent management and growing, growing leadership talent within a school? Well, I, I suppose, you know, one of the simple things around, particularly around identification, is that many of the people with probably some of the underlying... Uh, character and personality uh, dispositions that might be um, most relevant to kind of future successful leadership often don't put themselves forward. Uh, and perhaps there's others who have a tendency to rush towards putting themselves forward for leadership. And so, you know, one of the things I would say is if we just leave it to happen naturally, the identification process is one, we probably just won't have enough people putting themselves forward for leadership but perhaps also uh, we may not be putting, we may not be having the sorts of people that might be uh, Jim Collins called, you know, becoming level five leaders, uh, people who could really lead over a sustained period of time, a complex organization like a school. And so I think we need a, a real focus on uh, thinking about identification. I'm not a big fan of kind of industrial language like pipeline. It's hard to get away from it sometimes, but that idea of we do need uh, to keep growing our leaders and the starting point of that growing is uh, identifying potential talent coming forward. Uh, I've learned a lot from Singapore. Singapore is a very different system, uh, but uh, they're very systematic of principles constantly thinking about both the performance of um, their up and coming leaders, but also their potential. Uh, I know that's a bit of a contested concept of you know, how might we know potential, uh, how might we uh, decide what talent is. And I, I do want to acknowledge that uh, any of any discussion around those areas, uh, we need to have an honest discussion about how potential biases might play out. Uh, that we uh, see talent that looks a lot like um, the way we might perceive our own talent. Uh, and we need to uh, really broaden out and be clear about 
uh, the sorts of things that we're looking for in uh, people coming through. Yeah, yeah, other... yeah. so uh, what about you? Like, how did you think about identification, uh, you know, whether it's in programs uh, or others? We've had thoughts about this in New South Wales of, you know, trying to get to levels of people talking about their own self-awareness, um, you know, the, their awareness of uh, who they are, uh, their strengths. Uh, they're also uh, aware of uh, some of their weaknesses, their willingness to seek feedback. Um, you know, there's, there's things here that you think, you know, these sort of underlying qualities and dispositions could set someone up uh, for uh, moving on that path. Mm. A few things on this, Simon. Um, first of all, when I was at the National College of School Leadership, internally, mm. we used to have a system for all our staff, everyone from uh, clerical staff, back office staff, people who are working in the front line with leadership development, etc. It was a big organization. Every member of staff did 360 feedback annually. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. Because and that was helped us to make sure it was a values-based organization. So you couldn't thrive at the National College if your colleagues didn't think you were living the values. Uh, uh, and the other thing we did at the National College was we looked at performance and potential, okay. not just performance. Now, again, I agree with you. It's, it's easy to get into bias in these respects, but we did do a lot of moderation of that uh, so, and challenge each other on whether we were being sort of just trying to reinvent ourselves in thinking about other people's potential. Uh, and it was quite a powerful moderation process to look at uh, both performance and potential and identify people who we wanted to develop to the next stage who had the potential to grow. And of course, some of that was self-identification, but some of it was not. And I, I want to make this point. Whenever you step up into leadership, Mm. and a leadership role, whatever, wherever that is in an organization, what you're often doing is doing less of something you know you're good at mm. in order to do something you think you might be good at, but you're not sure. Yeah. And that is why yeah. it's so important that those who lead organizations or lead schools encourage people to step up. Mm. Give them and some and Otherwise, instead, yeah, I am with you. I think that it's, I guess where I'm jumping in here is this idea of you've got to get them to step up, but also how they can interpret or make meaning from that experience of what it's like to turn up into a role and to be doing, as you said, more of the things you don't know how to do and um, have that experience of having lower levels of fluency, if you like, in your daily work. And I think when I'm um, talking to aspiring leaders, particularly say aspiring principals, aspiring middle level leaders, they'll often sort of talk about that imposter syndrome of maybe, maybe I wasn't the right person for this because, you know, uh, I don't seem to know what I'm doing most of the time and helping people realize, well, actually, you know, maybe just early in the process here um, and helping them, uh, I think, interpret early on and make meaning that doesn't necessarily lead them to the conclusion that they weren't a good fit. Uh, they're just early in the process. Yeah, I've got to can I tell you, say a few things on this. Uh, sure. First of all, um, uh, I remember when I um, when I got my first big job in a local authority in England, I was suddenly promoted to being responsible for school improvement across a, a group mm -hmm. of about 100 schools, uh, as well as responsible for lifelong learning and a youth service and a whole range of other things. And I was out of my depth. And... Um, yeah. 
I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't doing the job very well. And eventually I decided I was doing it so badly, I'd tell my boss I was going to resign and that he should get someone better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've so talked about this it. before. Yeah. Oh. I wasn't seeing it. And uh, I said, uh, I'm going to resign because I'm, I'm letting you down. I'm not doing the job well yeah. enough. And at that point, my boss had my future career in the palm of his hand because if he'd said, you're right, yeah. uh, I think you go, I accept your resignation, that would have changed my life. Uh, instead, he said, resignation not accepted. Mm-hmm. And he fought in for me. And I ended up being really good at that job. I, I ended up excelling in that job. Yeah, but at that moment, my boss could have gone either way, mm-hmm. uh, and he decided to invest in me and put help in, and it was worth it because I ended up delivering for him. And that's a key issue for how the because sometimes if someone's not very good at the job and they offer you your resignation, you want to you want to snap the hand off, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to get that that judgment right. But, so he got that right with me. Mm. He knew that I had it with help. I wasn't doing the job very well at the time. But with help, I could. And that's a key aspect of good leadership, I think. Yeah, I love it. Well, look, you I know, also think yeah. Imperfect leadership, my, you know, that we talked last time about my book, Imperfect Leadership. Again, this is where imperfect leadership comes into its own because if you think that you have to be a perfect leader, mm-hmm. if you're the boss, you think everyone else has to be perfect too. Yeah. Uh, and you, you sort of dismiss people as not the finished product. They're not ready for leadership. They're not ready for leadership. They're not ready for leadership. They're not the finished product. But actually, if you realize that nobody is the finished product, yeah. everyone is on a learning journey, including mm. yourself. You've got areas for improvement and development too as a leader. You're far more likely to encourage others to step up and dismiss them as being not ready. Yeah. All right. Well, Steve, we've kind of thought a little bit about the, the why of investment in both our own leadership journeys and also uh, thinking about uh, the who, you know, who should see themselves as a leader. How do you both self-identify and put yourself forward? Uh, how do those in senior roles take on the role of spotting potential, investing in potential, helping people um, interpret some of that early doubt and push forward? Uh, let's get into the the what. And so many people think about oh, I'm going to divest, uh, I'm going to invest in my own leadership uh, capabilities. Uh, maybe they're thinking about signing up for a master's of educational leadership, or they're thinking about some sort of programmatic offering of some sort. Or maybe there's other people out there who are literally thinking about uh, running forms of leadership development for their middle level and teacher level leaders within their school or a broader cluster of schools. So. Um, you know, I'd be interested in your view of kind of when we develop leadership and particularly leadership for school leaders, um, you know, what are we actually trying to develop? And I know you've been doing a bit of thinking about this and some writing, and we've had a couple of dialogues back and forth about um, domain specific knowledge and skills that might be required. And then also generic leadership skills. And just wondering, where's your thinking landing on this, um, you know, either the combination or the tension between what should be prioritized, the domain specific and the generic. I think this is a really, really interesting issue. It's something I've been thinking quite a lot of in recent months. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, first of all, on the whole, I think that perhaps leadership development programs for school leaders have been a bit too generic sometimes. They've been yeah. 
focusing on uh, how you lead teams, how you build trust, how you have develop a vision, how you uh, have difficult conversations, etc. And not enough sometimes on what great school improvement looks like, mm-hmm. uh, how to set up a behavior management system that works or, or what, uh, what a good curriculum might be and how you might uh, implement it. And I think it's really, really important that if we're going to develop school leaders, whether that's middle leaders or senior leaders or, or principals, we focus on the domain in which they're operating and make mm. it relevant and real to them with real issues uh, that they're likely to come across mm-hmm. in their work. And I think we haven't done enough of that in the past in some leadership development programs. Uh, and so I'm, I'm applauding the thinking that's trying to say, okay, what are the complex problems that most leaders have to, op- have to deal with over their time uh, as leaders in schools. And yes. can we begin to get under the skin of that and unpack that and discuss on leadership development programs what those issues are and what the leaders might do around the content, not mm. just around the process. Mm. So what good teaching looks like and how you might uh, ensure it happens across your school. So those kind of issues. And I also think because we haven't emphasized that enough, We've tended to think that leaders are kind of born, uh, not made, and mm-hmm. you can't learn to be uh, an effective leader because you've got to have a certain kind of personality first. You've got to be a, a charismatic person or, or you've got to have mm-hmm. uh, But actually, if you think that it's about domain-specific expertise, mm-hmm. it's about understanding what good schools look like and how to, how to, how to get them to be good. If it's about things you can learn and work on and improve on. Mm-hmm. And it's open to a wider group of people to be leaders who might see themselves as charismatic or transformational, but are prepared to develop the expertise as to how to make a school better. So I think there's a real, uh, something really positive about this idea of focusing on uh, domain-specific domain expertise, getting under the skin mm. of what uh, good teaching and learning looks like and how you make it happen. I know mm. people like Vivian Robinson I've been writing some excellent stuff on this. Um, but I do think there's a danger that we might go too far the other way. I think it's all about domain specific. Uh, and I worry about that too. Uh, and yeah. I, again, so I think if, unless you invest, for example, here's what, unless you invest in how you develop uh, trust amongst your team, yeah. senior team, uh, unless you deliberately and proactively go about trying to do that, and build those relationships and build that trust. Uh, it, it may not, it may not happen, uh, you, and you may think actually it's just a byproduct of doing some work together. It's not just a byproduct of doing some work together. Mm-hmm. You have to proactively go out of your way to do processes that help to develop develop trust. And unless we look at some of those generic issues as well, uh, we might miss out and just think it's about content expertise and not process expertise. So I think there are certain generic skills that do travel with yep. nuance from one context to another. As someone who's led uh, organizations with very different domains, mm. uh, I was a director of education in a local authority, then I was a chief executive of the National College of School Leadership, and then I was chief executive of an international uh, organization called Education Development Trust. Quite different domains. Yeah, different contexts. Yeah. Very different contexts. I know that that some leadership skills travel. I didn't have to start from scratch learning how to chair a meeting or learning how to build a team. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's about balance here. I applaud the new focus on domain specific. I think it's right that we we get rid of this notion that yeah, everyone has to be a hero leader or a transformational leader. Yeah. We look at the expertise of doing the job. But I also think we shouldn't lose sight of the generic skills aspect too. We need to get some balance. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? As people trying to get a grip on what do we mean by effective school leadership? And once we start describing capabilities, a lot of systems have written frameworks and you would have seen 101 frameworks in the last decade trying to pin down uh, what is it that we want leaders to know, to do, uh, to understand, maybe even to be. Um, and uh, there's uh, many different ones here in Australia. We've got our um, uh, AITSL, Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. We have some principal standards that try to, to, to tease this apart. Uh, I've looked a lot at the Ontario standards for leadership. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's different frameworks. Every system has sort of been developing frameworks. But here we're trying to get to the core of, you know, you know, what do we need our leaders to be able to do? It's very hard to design leadership development, isn't it? Unless you've actually got clarity of the capabilities. Vivian's work, uh, Vivian Robinson, you know, from University of Auckland, um, uh, she obviously tried to capture three of the key capabilities that I've heard her talk about and I've spoken with her about. And she gets to that, the, the using of the knowledge, which gets to that domain specific uh, yeah. knowledge uh, the, the solving of complex problems. And she's really uh, developed some very sophisticated thinking there, particularly around deep analysis of what's the real problem to be solved. Uh, and then she's always pushed, Steve, your exact point on that, the building of relational trust. And I think, you know, it's a pretty elegant solution, that, that idea of the using of the knowledge, the solving complex problems, and the building relational trust. It, it, it ports pretty well across different areas. Um, but I would say, you know, it's important for us, isn't it, to keep this field of uh, what is it that is worth investing in? What is it that we're actually trying to develop a contested space? Um, and it's been interesting watching uh, a growing uh, discourse uh, and discussion around the importance of domain specific knowledge. What do you yeah, reckon? Can just, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Sorry, um, can I just come in there? I, I yeah. absolutely agree. I think Vivian's stuff is, is fabulous, but she's written something new very recently. Oh, update adds, us. You've got adds your... a full dimension to it. Mm -hmm. uh, she's talking not just about those three things. She's also talking about what she calls virtues, mm. which is about doing the right thing in the right way. It's the ethical side of leadership. That's not good. just about values, because values can be theoretical. Okay. She calls them virtues because it's actually doing rather than thinking. It's it's behaving rather mm. than having the values. So it's behaving in a way that's true to your values. And I think that's a that's a really important dimension. Yeah, me too. I think at the moment in different education systems, there's some big ethical issues, uh, and I think the idea of leaders choosing to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing, you know, flexing their ethical muscle. Mm. wrestling with issues which are gray areas and working out what the right thing is to do, what the ethical thing is to do. is a really interesting aspect of this. And I applaud the fact that Vivian's added virtues to a, a list of other three things. I love it. I, I hate to tell you, but um, 
as the father of three young kids, uh, Frozen 2 is coming to mind here, Steve. This may not have hit your movie list yet, but <laughs> there is a song and the, the key driver of one of those songs is do the next right thing, do the next right thing. Uh, and uh, my four-year-old daughter, I think, would be proud that I'm bringing um, some of the things she's exposed me to <laughs> into our dialogue here. But there is that thing of do the next right thing. Uh, don't just pontificate about values and moral imperative, but um, be a, a certain way and, and act it. Um, yeah. And I, I like this, you know, sort of broadening out again, both the, the, the returning to deep things, you know, uh, deep things uh, that humans have wrestled with for many uh, thousands of years about virtues and uh, uh, what it is to be a leader that can uh, make impact and to serve and to do the right thing. And then there's also this growing uh, focus on the domain specific area, which, you know, really draws on a lot of the uh, literature of expertise and the, the concepts around um, building up mental models, sophisticated schema in our long-term memory. And then as we build out more sophisticated uh, knowledge, uh, we're able to guide action in real time. You know, the, the chess master who, because uh, he or she has built up those mental models of all the different gameplay and all the different organizations can make the right call at the right time. Uh, and I, I understand why that there's that, you know, real need to, to focus on domain specific things like really deeply understanding uh, cognitive science and its implications, uh, understanding uh, what it actually looks like to do high quality teacher development. These shouldn't be just things that are uh, broad and generic, but they require uh, deep knowledge. Even if you're going to improve literacy and you don't e deeply understand, you know, phonemic awareness and phonological awareness and fluency, uh, vocab comprehension, and can't get into that detail. It's very hard uh, to think that you're going to guide practice improvement. Um, so it makes sense to me, and I'm, I'm glad we're getting ahead around some of that expertise literature, but I also like that we're going back into the wisdom literature of virtues. Completely agree with you about this. I, I think it's, it should be applauded that we're really pushing, that some, some leadership programs are really pushing on this. So yeah. in terms of the portion of expertise. You, have you ever read the book, um, Why Should Anyone Be Led By You by Goffey and Jones? I think it's a really good book. It, it came out in 2010. And it, it says there are two reasons mm -hmm. why people will want to follow you as a leader. And the, and the first and the most important one is that you are authentic and genuine and honest and not playing games mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you admit your mistakes. Um, but there's a second reason why people want to follow you because I think you know what you're doing. Uh, there's, actually, you've got some expertise and you've got some credibility. And I think that sums up actually what we're, what we're saying here. That you've sure got does. to, if you need a school, you've got to understand what good teaching and school improvement and uh, uh, looks like and, and how to develop it as well mm. as authentic and genuine so people want to follow you. It's good. I think it gives a, a good framework for both those who are uh, designing leadership programs, whether they be larger programs or also those who are just uh, taking care of their own patch as a, as a senior leader within a school, thinking about, well, what am I seeking to develop in the leaders um, in my school? But I think also for all of us, as we think about um, areas that we want to keep developing uh, in our own leadership capability, um, you, know, you and I included that idea of that authentic and genuine, the self, the virtues, the character, uh, the being, you know, 
I'd, I'd throw in there as well, um, Robert Keegan's idea of self-authoring. Um, and then also the, you know what you do, <laughs> you know what you're trying to do, you have competence uh, and you have those knowledge structures to the point of not just knowing about them, but knowing how to put them into action in real time within your context. Can I, uh, can I raise one more issue, mm. Simon, I wanted to mention earlier about developing talent. Okay. Um, one of the things I think leaders sometimes don't do mm. is they, they don't put their, their, their senior staff or their up-and-coming leaders into very difficult situations because they want to protect them. Mm. Uh, so they, they see themselves, because they are the principal or the CEO or whatever, that they should do the really tough things themselves because they get paid more money. And they should protect their staff from doing these very tough things. Got it. The trouble is that um, how are these staff going to learn how to do the tough things if they're not given a chance to have a go? <laughs> so, you know, it might be about dealing with a difficult um, meeting of parents or it might be uh, a school board meeting or it might be a big budget issue or uh, it might be a very difficult performance discussion but unless um, with help mm. leaders are getting a chance to have a go at this how are they going to learn to do it you could role play only takes you so far and I think that sometimes um, leaders for different reasons uh, are, are not giving their their colleagues who they're leading a chance to have a go at some of these really difficult things with help with coaching with support with mentoring and, mm. I, and, I, and I, what I find interesting is the really good leaders have that, you were talking earlier about having that kind of contract. Yeah. You're gonna, be, you're gonna develop in this organization and I'm, I'm gonna give you those opportunities. Some of those really challenging things that really, that, that really test you, how, that those kind of opportunities should be, should be devolved out to colleagues in your team, not just done by you because that you think they're tough and that you'll, you get paid the money to do them. Well, let's think about this. I mean, I, uh, maybe uh, we'll kind of um, attack this a little bit. I might call it uh, for a pause for round two and be careful. I might ask you for round three if it, if it keeps going as well as it has been, Steve. Um, but I'm interested yeah. at the really personal level here. So take me, take me to a head teacher, a principal, a senior leader within a school. I've heard one piece of advice here directly around, you know, you're confident, you might be now um, uh, unconsciously competent, you make the right call at the right time in complex situations. And um, I've heard you say, you know, it's going to be important to open up opportunities for people to step up and safely take on some of that. So look, let me try to frame this up. I'm interested in what's your advice to, to, to principals or to senior school leaders thinking about investing in people um, who are up and coming. But I also would love to get your flip side. What happens if I'm an up and coming teacher leader, middle leader? Look, uh, I may not have it all together, but I've got aspirations to lead. I wanna have a, a, an influence. I feel like I'm coming up but my principal or my senior leader at the moment isn't necessarily proactively kind of uh, investing in my leadership or even opening up that discussion. So yeah, can you take me to the kind of that very kind of personal local level and any advice for either of those two actors there? Well, on the second one, mm. um, it's a very, very tough situation. And we know one of the things that we know from, from our work in England was that if you develop 
uh, a middle leader in a school by, yeah. s- by sending them on a program or a course and they get great leadership development and go back into their organization, the culture of the organization will always win over the leadership development. Yeah, wow. So that um, it's very hard for someone who's had that leadership development training who goes back into a, a, an organization which isn't, doesn't value that. It's very hard for that individual to make an impact. Uh, so that's why when we really focus on middle leadership training in England, we shifted our, our focus away from the individual mm-hmm. uh, middle leader towards the mi- individual middle leader within the context of their organization. Got it. Uh, and I think that's a very, very important point. So it's, we, we used to, in England, we used to um, invest in about training about 5,000 middle leaders a year. Okay. But actually, impact was pretty limited, pretty uh, minimal, because the, the, the culture of the organization was not sufficiently mm. ready to take and use the investment of those middle leaders within their organization. So, so what we have to do instead is work with a senior team and the middle leaders together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any, any investment was then more likely to be, um, to be used and developed and valued. Now, if you can't do that, if you're stuck, in an organization where you want to develop as a leader, but the senior team have got no interest in that, that's a big issue for you. Mm. So I, would say, I would say two things. I'd say, first of all, decide on your area of control and influence. Yep. And try and do things that are beyond your area of influence. So focus on things you can do within your organization to, uh, to demonstrate your leadership and improve your leadership. Mm-hmm. And there will be things your own classroom within your own team that you can do and develop uh, but i'd also say look outward yep get your um get your networks going uh get your um get, get involved in talking with people from other other schools and, and other other leaders and, and if if you're really stuck and it's just not moving for you at all and you're unhappy then i think you've got to look at moving to another school where where you can develop in the end that's that would be the ultimate choice Got it. Yeah, I'm even thinking across, you know, your five areas that you kicked off, Steve, around a chance to lead uh, with feedback, exposure to leadership outside, uh, your knowledge base and research, and then a chance to discuss with others. There's some things there that probably do fit within your zone of influence and control. Um, You know, you can push yourself a little bit more. You can uh, put yourself forward for certain opportunities. You can get your reading going. You can join some professional associations. Um, you can look for acting up in a role uh, in another school, sometimes temporary roles and other positions that allow us to get that number three, that exposure to leadership from outside and some uh, new experiences and feedback. Um, but yeah, I suppose there, there might be for some people a sense that um, uh, their leadership development in a certain place uh, may be capped uh, and it might be time to, to look for a place to, to develop further, someone that they can enter that sort of social contract of, uh, you know, I'll really give you my my all on the way up here, and uh, can you keep pushing me and forming me to be the kind of leader that could take on a, a team or a larger organisation on my own? And sometimes, sometimes leaders, principals, uh, without without any malice, just don't recognise talent in certain people. Yeah, I, I always always used to say to um, school head teachers in England, think mm. about people who flourished under your leadership, who weren't flourishing under the leadership of the last principal or the last head teacher. Mm. Uh, and then I'd say, 
and who will your successor spot that you didn't? <laughs> Good one. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you can find yourself in a situation where you have got talent, you have got potential, but you just can't seem to convince the, the people above you that, that you, you've got that. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's just a blind spot. Sometimes they may be right and you haven't got the potential to, to do these yeah. things. And I think self-awareness is really important. And that's why I'd say 360 feedback is so powerful. But I also think that sometimes, sometimes in the more extreme cases, you do have to change your context. Yeah, you know, um, so you're talking about changing context for, for everyone in this time over the last couple of months. I think what's been interesting is even though people have stayed at the same school, the context for leadership has changed so dramatically. And some of maybe the hierarchical norms uh, have been broken down. We've seen more networked leadership, more remote leadership. Uh, and perhaps some leaders who held things quite tightly haven't been able to anymore. And we've seen emergence of uh, new middle and teacher leaders stepping up and leading certain things. And, you know, one of my hopes uh, in sort of as we build back better is that we won't lose some of the, that emergent leadership. Um, you know, if you think about agile teams and being, uh, having a greater level of autonomy and empowerment, I think we've, we've seen that occur as a matter of necessity, uh, particularly as middle and teacher leaders sort of flex their capabilities a little bit and show what they, what they were able to do. Uh, and I am hoping that for, for some this period, even though it's been one of great tension and, and challenge, that that might have given uh, a, a bit of a, a landscape for them to demonstrate uh, that those levels of confidence that they may not have been able to demonstrate before. That's a great point. I, it's, I think institutional leadership, mm. where everyone's in the same place all the time, can lead to over-controlling. Mm -hmm. And I think if you, if you find that you're now in a dispersed situation where you're not seeing people uh, every day, mm -hmm. you have to have a different approach to leadership. It has to be yeah. more trusting. And I think that hopefully uh, some of those, some of that, as you say, loosening up of, the, of, uh, of leadership to make it more trust-based will carry on when we get to the new normal. Well, Steve, uh, it's been a, a real pleasure again to spend a little time together and explore this area of mutual interest and work around investing in school leadership. So, hey, look, thanks so much for making some more time. I hope uh, you've enjoyed the discussion as well. What have you got coming up on the horizon in the next couple of weeks or months in your work? I, I know where you'll be doing it from, um, the room you're in now probably, but what, what's, what's kind of on the horizon? Well, we're, we're preparing our, um, our arc virtual summit. ARC is uh, eight different education systems from around the world. They're yep. and, and professional associations coming together to share what they're learning from their own system and from others. Mm -hmm. We're going to do this virtually this year. So we're planning for that with uh, to use Zoom to bring people in from Uruguay and Nova Scotia and Iceland and Finland and, and Scotland and Wales and, and other parts. Fantastic. So we're just preparing. And now also I'm, I'm working on a new speech all right. about leading in a pandemic, looking at what um, school leaders are doing in these very challenging times, but also what lessons we can learn or not learn from what our statewide and national uh, leaders have been doing and how they've led the pandemic. So I'm just trying to put that keynote speech together at the moment, Simon. Well, it sure sounds like you won't be sitting around through the next few weeks of isolation, uh, finding something else to watch on Netflix, Steve. You uh, have a fair what amount to... Before we go, what are you working on? 
Look, I'm really uh, in the Australian context, mate, thinking about how to support our network of leaders uh, to, to build back better, um, how to first support staff through the recovery and the re-entry, which in my context is happening now. Uh, I think a little bit about, uh, you think about someone who's done a deep dive and if they come up too quickly, uh, and there's a little bit about that, that they've been deep and suddenly they're being asked to come up quick and quicker than they were told even a, a few weeks ago. So I'm, I'm thinking about um, how to support school leaders uh, work with their teams to, to, to pulse check and tune in about how people really are. And then uh, I've been thinking about this idea of this opportunity phase that will emerge and a three phase, so a three parts to that. So I've been trying to think about how to help people learn, which involves both just documenting what happened even, and then trying to make sense of it. Secondly, to cleanse. So how do we get to the essential things that we want to take forward? And then to weave. Uh, so this idea of the through lines of the new, but also connecting to the best of what's made our school history and culture special um, before all this happened. So I don't have any, any easy answers on that one, Steve, but um, because it of sounds, the speed, the speed to, at which uh, we're moving, that's, that's the work. All right, mate. Well, stay safe, uh, stay connected at a distance. And uh, thanks again yeah. for making some time to connect. I can't wait to see you in person at some point and digitally, no doubt, pretty soon. Steve, all the best. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, brother. Bye. Bye.